Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Why? Things escalated quickly. We are now top three in the business management podcast space in both Zambia and Luxembourg. We're also top 50 within the United States of America. So as Pitbull would say, we are truly Mr. Worldwide. So here's the deal. The Run the Numbers podcast is now going to release two episodes per week, which is approximately one more, I am told, than we are currently doing. On Mondays, we will continue our regularly scheduled programming from top CFOs in the industry. And then on Thursdays, we'll be interviewing top operators in adjacent functions to finance, like sales and marketing, or featuring special guests and friends of the podcast. So the goal is still to provide the operating knowledge CFOs should know in all orgs they touch within a company, whether they work in Zambia or the United States. So yeah, stay tuned. We're about to do another lap. What's going on, everybody? This is CJ Gustafson here with another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm here with Ethan Schechter, VP of Sales at Snike, Snook. Snook. Can you help me with that? Snick, I believe, is what the Brits used to call it. But uh, no, oh, it is, oh, okay. It is, is Snake. I believe you're familiar with it as well. I, I had so much fun with you for three years, Ethan, I, I blacked out. So thanks for refreshing the name for me. <laughs> it stands for So Now You Know, in case uh, in case you had forgotten that. Uh, so Now You Know, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. And there you go. Y- you were saying before we jumped on, how many quarters have you been there for now? Uh, this is my 23rd quarter. So coming up on six years after a, a big Q4 coming up here. Yeah, almost six years. That's crazy. And yeah. you, w- what employee were you? I was number hired? 27. What was it? I was number 27. I started with 25 and 26 on the same day, but I give them the respect of being in front of me. So yeah, I was, uh, I was the 27th employee at Snake. That's crazy. And, and I mean, the company has basically gone over 1500 or so. So you've been there from the very beginning. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to bring you back to the first time we worked together. And so I was yep. sitting on the finance side of the table. Yeah. Yeah. We were sitting on the sales side of the table Two yep. guys. Two, two good-looking guys getting to yes. know each other. <laughs> and we were going over the operating plan. And uh, yeah. we were working on – it was kind of this this push and pull between I wanted to set a number that was ambitious and venture-backable and acceptable, and then you yeah. were the sales leader who had to go out and achieve that. So, like, what was going through your head when, when you were working with me on that? Were you saying this guy's, like, you know, full of shit, he's going to jack up my number and I'm not going to get paid? Or were you thinking, like, <laughs> I know that I have to take an ambitious goal here? Um. Well, first, I remember being in awe and dumbstruck by your model, which was like, uh, you know, I don't even think you could call it an Excel file. It seemed to have taken a large amount of steroids and morphed into some product that hasn't even been released yet in terms of planning. I don't know how you created that thing or how long it took you to do that thing. But I remember just like I couldn't even understand it for the first week and a half. And by like week two, I was like, OK, I get what's going on here. Just the outline. So that was the first thing. Um I never worry about a big number. I, I will tell you, I'm, a, I'm an early stage leader at heart. I am very equity driven. Uh, we need to grow, right? And I, um, I get into this, this, you know, into organizations to build world-class companies. And that's going to mean shooting for the moon, even if ultimately you only hit the stars, right? So I think going for big goals is fine. It's, it's making sure that you're in a culture where 
look, if we overshoot or, or we just got over our skis or we just got crazy about what we thought we could do, we have a, have a valve or a mechanism to change those goals. Um, and I think especially with salespeople, if you show them that, it's like, hey, I'm going to ask you to do great things. I'm going to ask you to go big. But if we end up that, hey, you did everything right, it was clearly just over your skis, we'll find a way to, to kind of course correct that. What's your, what's your perspective on like changing a number mid-year? Do you think that's something that is is acceptable? And, and, and talk about it like in both directions, like up or down. That's a conversation I constantly have with my sales reps. It's like, again, hey, we're here, we're here to build something great. We're here, here to build something big. Also, we don't have a lot of historical data, right? So this, this new finance geek they hired, I don't know. He tells me we can do all this, but I don't know. Um, I'd say, look, we're going to put a number out there. And my, and my ask is that we all give everything we have to get there. But look, we're going to have at the end of a quarter, at the end of a half, we're going to have a process to sit there and say, look, did you do everything you could do to hit that? And if you didn't, yeah, we'll find a way to adjust that, right? And maybe it means... Uh, moving some of that number to another team that is overcom, you know, adjusting or something like that. But then at the same time, making clear that, hey, if you blow this number out, we're going to say great job, but then we're going to raise the number for the second half. Because again, we all should be here for our equity as much as we should be our compensation. I mean, obviously people need to, to make money to pay their bills and live their lifestyle, but I think we should be here to, to push ourselves to do as much as we possibly can. And that's how we're going to have ultimately the most successful outcome possible. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have a problem changing numbers halfway through. I think it's, it takes more communication, but I think that's a good right. thing. Right. Yeah. Well, you've said a couple of times is the equity outcome. Um, what I like about your kind of methodology to working with people in sales leadership is you, you explain that to the people you hire, right? hundred percent, especially, you know, look, there is nothing wrong and I don't want to turn off a bunch of salespeople out there who one day could potentially want to work with me um, that are great. Look, there's nothing wrong with coin-operated salespeople who just want to blow out their W-2. And I think there's a time and a place for that type of rep. But I think early on, you really want to look to hire builders and constantly create a culture of that, of that, like, hey, we are all in this together. Sometimes you're going to have to take a little bit more number of a number than this person. But like, again, that's because we're all in this together and you should be motivated by you know, what your equity outcome is and, and making sure they understand that, making sure that you walk through with them. Hey, this is what your shares are worth. This is what they could be worth if we have a series B. This is what they could be worth if we have a series C. Um, this is what an outcome could look like for you. You know, making sure they understand that. I think that's incredibly important. What are some of the ways to prevent like the infighting between team members and like arguing over like the small shit of like, that's my account? Oh, there's nothing worse. So, so one, culturally, I it is like, when, when I'm interviewing people and a lot of salespeople will ask, it's a good question. They'll say like, what are your non-negotiables? What are, what are the things that like you care about more than anything? And I make it clear. I, I put, I have a no vacancy sign around my neck for that kind of stuff. <laughs> I will not get involved in the conversation. There is nothing more soul sucking than a bunch of salespeople spending a bunch of time arguing about a deal or an account instead of being out in front of a customer. And the worst part is those deals almost never close. It's like some gypsy curse around that deal that like because you brought so much bad karma into the situation that uh, it's just it's there's just, they don't end up closing. And then you ended up fighting with someone on your own team for six weeks about something that didn't happen. Um, so that's me culturally. Um, some of the more like tactical mechanisms I'll, I'll put in. Uh, uh, I love, especially early on, a bucket of variable compensation that's a shared goal. 
So I'll put people in, in, in Europe and North America, like 20% of your comp is on the whole floors number. So every time a deal comes in, you actually get paid on it. And that's my like tax or like, that's my comp to you to never hear you argue about a deal. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, look, I'll, I'll put together a structure where it's like, Hey, if you have an argument and you want me to make a decision, I'll make a decision, but I'm making it in five seconds and I'm moving on. So if you don't want that, I suggest you two come up with a split. And I, I'm a huge supporter of splits. I'm a huge supporter of sales reps working together. Um, and, and so that that's how I'll handle that. And, you know, look, it's probably not the most popular part of my leadership style. I know a lot of people, uh, our good friend Shalomi Komen, friend of the pod, right, have, have, have yelled at me till the sun went down about stuff like that. But that's my ethos. I, I, I truly believe spending time on that stuff is one of the worst things you can do, especially early stage. Um, yeah. What are some of the other frictions around comp that may come up? within a sales team, is it usually just about sharing accounts? Like sometimes this bubbles up to finance, but I know that there's probably a lot of internal stuff that goes on. Yeah. I think draws are tough. I, I, am not against draws. I don't know what I find that. Can, can you explain how a draw works? Cause I, I, I have different, uh, interpretations. Well, this is, <laughs> this yeah. is the problem. There's like 37 types of draws out there. Okay. okay. There's like, and, and, everyone assumes the draw you're going to give them was the one they just had that they loved. And so you could have a recoverable draw where a certain, you get a certain percentage of your compensation up front, but then it comes back out of your paycheck. As you hit that draw, you could have a draw, like an unrecoverable draw where it's like the company's just giving you your first quarter's money. Um, yeah. and then you don't have to hit anything. Uh, you could have like a, a ramped draw where every time you close a deal or hit some benchmark, it releases some type of compensation. I find they just make people confused um, and people sit around just waiting for their draw. I don't love them. I'm, I'm sure we're probably aligned on that. Yeah. I would rather give people really realistic targets in the first six months so that they can do the job the right way and, and ramp not under stress. Um, that That's where where I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable. Now, I've, I've given draws, especially, look, I get it. If you're recruiting a top producer or say you were going after a top VP of finance that's happy right. at their company and doing extremely well and they're going to walk away from money, I totally get that you have to have some mechanism to make them whole when they come in. But again, generally, I would lean towards a very achievable plan in the first six months or maybe there's an account, you know, a customer account that you know there's going to be a deal in that you can give them to kind of give them a, 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 a soft yeah, softball off the bat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, draws, draws are, 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 are tough. I find them to be a distractor again, probably not the most popular thing from the, the sales population out there, but that is yeah. my, my personal take on that. Wow. That was a, I feel like we get to hype that up as a, a contrary take from a sales Everyone, guy. After this, uh, this podcast, right. I, I got another question about ramping. Like, how do you think about getting a wrap up to speed in your mind? Like, does it not matter what segment in, you're in? Like you get up to speed in this amount of time and we coach you, or is it, do you think there's a longer lead time depending on what you're selling and, and I don't know what segment you're in? I think there is a longer lead time based on the composition of leads that your organization is getting. Uh, the segment, I, yeah. How big is a deal? Like, a sales cycle is just math, right? So if you hire an enterprise rep and your sales cycle is nine months, you really can't expect them to be at full quota until nine months out because there is just the simple math equation. 
I also think the amount of historical data and stable production you have is also a big factor, right? So it's really hard to set very specific goals early on in a company's trajectory because you don't have a lot of historical data. Did the first sales rep you hire just get lucky? Did the first yeah. sales rep you hire just was exceptionally bad? Um, whereas as, as we go on through the years, I want to tighten my expectations down to where it's like, hey, at month one, this is where you should be. I know we're not expecting like bookings from you yet, but like how many meetings, how much activity, you should start to be able to give someone a very clear idea of like how they are tracking towards those those and when me and you were in that room for the first time planning, yep. I felt like we had like these achievable milestones that we felt pretty yep. comfortable about for like S&B in the Americas. But then there yep. were other segments where we were completely throwing stuff at the wall, hoping it would work. Yeah. And, th and that's where I think you've got to get back to back to what we first talked about. Like um, you've got to be comfortable changing the model as, as more data comes in and you're going to get some stuff right and you're going to get some stuff way wrong. So again, actually the precedent I like to set early on is like, we will make changes on this, right? I don't think for, you know, half, like one half goals are a bad thing that early on because it gives you that natural place to change. Whether it's, wow, we we way under scope this and we can raise goals or like, wow, we way over scope this and we need to, we need to help people. My, my wife is in sales too. And she will always argue with me that like once they achieve a certain number or blow out their number or even just get 110%, she always thinks that finance is on the side of just taking that number and then making it their goal for the next quarter. Yeah. Can you speak to like, do you, do you ever think that you're a victim of your own success? I want to give you a bit of a soapbox here. If you do think that finance will uh, kind of screw you in that way of, of taking your success and making it your future goal. What stage company is your wife at these days? Late stage, private. I think early on, again, raising goals is really important for the company's mission because this is how we get Series B. This is how we get Series C. This is how we get stuff, right? <laughs> I think when you joined, I was still on HubSpot CRM, right? Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was that was wild. We need stuff, right? Um and so I think early on, everyone's got to be comfortable that goals are going to go up because this we all have so much to benefit from us overachieving and continue to, to get better. And it's also, I think a lot of companies cap themselves early on because they never stress test themselves of like, how well can we really do? Yeah. Now again, you can untie compensation for that. So people aren't getting crushed when when those goals are going up. I think as a company becomes more mature, yes, you got to be careful that it's not just like, hey, we're using goal setting to affect attainment, right? Um, I, I think that later stage, I do have concerns about that when I hear about things like that. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. 
Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash metrics. That's netsuite.com slash metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash metrics. Something that I've heard you say before that we're going to set aggressive goals, but we're going to try to help people get quick wins. I think you had a term. It was like trading dollars for speed. Yeah, like I don't I don't think discounting is a bad thing, especially early on. I think that we've got to get logos. We've got to get customers. We've got to get really comfortable with who our buying personas are. Um, and also sales is hard. And it's and and you know I, I just think allow people to move fast and own their business and, and if they need to discount to get a deal in faster, like let's do that. I I also think, you know, I think this is something that, you know, both Peter McKay, our CEO now, and Guy Pajarni, our original founder, like expect a lot from your sales team, but be available to them at all times to help. And both of those gentlemen, myself included, like I think we all get along because like I am on any call anyone needs me to be on. I think if you're going to expect big things from people, you got to show them that you're in the foxhole with them and you're leading from the front and you're there to to get there. And you're not going to ask them to do anything like that, that you wouldn't do yourself, right? But back um, to the discounting part, just to put on my finance app. Yeah, please. You, if the value is in the product, are you selling yeah. yourself short or setting yourself up for a renewal at a lower amount? Like, how do you yeah. square that out? I think a, I think a couple things. It's like, okay, the value is in the product, but is what you're attempting to charge for that value actually realistic? Or are you in a good way creating a buffer where it's perceived that you're expensive, but so you're letting the customer win to a certain extent. And yeah, it looks like a bigger discount, than, a bigger discount, but it's really bringing you down to where, where the value is. So some of it I think is a little bit of razzle dazzle with that. I think outside of that, I would say that, um, you know, you can do things like ramp goals. You can do things like having on the quote, Hey, this is partnership pricing. Um, and for me to give you this pricing, I need an email confirmation from you that you understand that this was a one-time deal to help you get into our buying ecosystem. Um, and that, you know, in future endeavors, that's not going to be the case. I like how you said razzle-dazzle, Ethan, because I think that is true to let people know that they're getting a win. Like, yeah. uh, and, hey, I'm on the other side of the table from you now too, right? Yeah. Like now yeah. I'm, I'm a customer of yours. Yeah. And when I yes. saw the and discount on there... I got to say, it made me feel like I'm getting a win. I'm paying these guys a lot of money, but it looks like with the discount, I'm getting a win. I think, I think, I know this is more of a finance focused pod and I yeah. love it. Uh, I do a lot of founder focused pods, but like, mm -hmm. I've it's seen all related. This, yeah, it's all related. Well, I've seen this with CFOs too. I think there is a, a lot of startups getting their own way or growth companies getting their own way thinking they have to win on every deal. Say more let, about that. Let, you let your customers, like the greatest thing about SaaS is every year you have an opportunity to win. And I think in a long-term partnership, sometimes the customer has to win. Like, and especially when you're like a, a younger stage startup, they don't know who you are. Just get them to, you know, a lot of our biggest customers started getting great deals from us. And over the years, like by the value we've shown them, we've been able to increase the price there. Right. And, and, um, I think, I think there can be a myopic fo focus on like, oh my God, why are we giving this discount again? Why are we giving this discount again? It's like, hey, 
because we're getting customers. That's why we're giving that discount again. Um, and guess what? They're going to pay again next year. And next year we can have another product or we can raise the price or we can, you know, add more seats. Right. So I think there's an obsession with winning every time. I, I, um, I love the fact in SaaS that you, you have this naturally built in competition period once a year. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but sales cycles have to align to a price that makes sense. So when negotiations stretch out forever and all of a sudden say your 60K deal went from 30 days to 60 days, that deal had a lot more sales velocity and a lot more efficiency and a lot more value when it was going to happen at 30 days. If you had just given the, 10, the 15K discount. Yeah. Like, is that 45K and time deal? kills all deals, right? Time kills all deals. And, and what's the valuing from a capacity standpoint? If you can do more deals, is a 45K deal at 20 day sales cycle better than a 60k deal at a 60 day sales cycle right there's a model where that would you would see where that makes sense but speed speed is very underrated do you are, do you look at the speed to deals being closed like average yeah. days for your team pretty often oh yeah. oh yeah all the time and again more i need to see a an average deal size that makes sense so like okay. i love a ten dollar deal but it has to end by the time this podcast is over Right. <laughs> Everything has to have a sales cycle that makes sense. So again, if a, if a team's sales cycle is longer, but their average deal size is much higher, I'm okay with that because that tells me they're executing on more of a higher end motion. If a team's average deal size is lower, that might be okay too. I just need to see that they're doing more deals and they're doing them faster, right? And speaking of get people to get do deals faster... A point of contention between finance and sales traditionally has been spiffs. Like I, yeah. to to me, like uh, the the jury's still out if they work. What when I've given you a spiff budget in the past, I I know you've had different structures that you've used, but like, how how do you make sure it's successful? Does it fall off the rails from the beginning just because of the structure, or is it just that reps will find a way to game it? I would say the first thing is where spiffs don't work is if you're a finance person at a company that has the wrong sales culture. So if you're releasing spiffs into a culture where people actually like work 100% harder just because a spiff got rolled out, I would say you need to be talking with your CEO about what kind of sales culture is our sales leader um, putting out there, right? So that would be the first thing I would say is that like, there is a time when spiffs are just flushing money down the toilet and it's usually when they're released into bad sales cultures. So I'd say for, if you're a finance person listening to this. Right, if you need a spiff to get out of bed in the morning, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, where I've seen spiffs work, the two ways I've worked and one kind of, you probably aren't sold on, but is the metric one. And then I'll give you the other way I think spiffs work that you might, it's in a way you're probably not thinking of. Is, yeah, um, so one is like, I always see spiffs as like, okay, we've got a really big stretch target for this quarter and I need to get more out of the middle of the pack because my top people are going to be my top people and they're always going to excel and they're going to do more. My bottom, bottom people, I'm probably in some form or fashion trying to either work them out of the business or really get them intensive training to get them back, like get them in the game. And they're, I'm probably not going to be able to rely on them anyway. And then my middle people, like if it's a Q4 spiff and someone's at 50% of their number and they're like, you know what? It's just been a tough year. I'll close the deals that are obviously right in front of me and right there. But like, I'm going to start really focusing on building for next year. 
because the greatest thing in sales is every quarter, you know, well, we all, we all started at, uh, in first place tied for zero. Right. Um, so how do I get actually that person? How do I get my 10 people in the middle to each do 20% more? Like that's where I generally see a spiff. Yeah. That's a needle mover. I never thought about targeting the middle. Cause I always think about it. Like, I don't know, just overall achievement. I never thought about it that specific to a segment of the pack. That's that's where I've seen it work. I've seen it work in tough, traditionally tough quarters, first months of quarters. Uh, keep keep Q4 accelerators going for January. Keep uh, some type of thing in July, a fast start. You know, just times when it's just a lonely time to be a salesperson. Uh, th- those work. Um, the other way they work, I, you know, I'm a student of history. My dad was a high school history teacher. You know, you, I, I, uh, I always use this analogy. It's like the um, FDR with the New Deal, right? Economists today will actually tell you, like, none of all those programs he did really changed the economy or made the economy better. Like, it, the economy just needed to unwind itself because it was so, you know, upside down. Um, but what it did was it kept people's heads in the game and it kept people getting out of bed every day. And I think, look, in tough economic times or in those years where maybe the goals were not scoped the right way and, and you know it's a moment in time or, hey, next year, halfway through the year, we want to grow again. It's expensive to have to go hire all new people and train them up and get them to you know, be able to contribute. That takes time too, right? Those ramp goals. So if you're in that situation, even if it's a loss leader, it is going to affect your CAC. I get that. But Sometimes you got to get people building dams and bridges and uh, and roadways because because you know you're going to get to the other end of this and you don't want to lose talented people like that's an, that I, I fundamentally do see spiffs as a a very good lever for that scenario uh, if you find yourself in that scenario yeah it helps people transition from one point in time to another is what I think you're saying look we you were you were at sneak during COVID and COVID turned out to be a really strong growth time for us but remember how terrifying that was like yeah remember i think we had like nine deals pushed the first week because it was like a hotel an airline like yeah look at that and it's like hey we got to give the field some confidence to go out there and like get out of bed because like it's a really hard thing to be confident right now you don't want them turning off no and so that a spiff there that might not hit your bottom line in terms of more bookings but it people in the game. So then when it was like, oh, wait, it's a quarter in and now everyone's doing these weird happy hours on Zoom. And there's all these these conference companies that are worth $10 billion and everyone's yeah. buying stuff. <laughs> like, wow, I'm glad we didn't like overreact and lose all these people because then we had the critical mass to go out and have, you know, unbelievable growth quarters, right? So that's the other place I see Spiffs as a, as a positive. It- just to reflect on it, that was wild. Like how many wow. of these like online companies were like me and you'd never heard of were suddenly worth $8 billion the next day. Oh my God. And it was like, don't worry, everyone's buying. Like just just do a conference on this thing. And, it's, and that's what it turned out to be. Ironically, it was crazy, right? And so a lot of the stuff we did, you know, around uh, a deal, uh, ability for reps to be flexible in how they presented deal pricing and things like that, I think it just, we nailed that. It gave people the confidence to keep on going, right? Oh, I get like it just changing gears a bit. So we kind of covered incentives and driving outcomes. I want to touch on structure. And so uh, a hot topic in the finance community is kind of where sales ops should sit. I wonder if you have a take on that, having worked so closely with sales ops for so long. It definitely should not sit in sales. That that would be my strongest point. 
It is, I didn't pay you to say that, by the way. No, you did not. But sales leaders out there, you want the truth. You do not want bias. And because Mick is, you know, little Mickey loves you and you're funny and you take him out for beers, that is not a good place to be. You want your sales ops team to obviously be rooting for you, but they want you want them putting unbiased data in front of you. Um, and you do not want to be influencing that either on purpose or, or, you know, without realizing it. Right. So I'm a, I'm a huge believer of getting sales ops into another organization from, from there, I would say, you know, how strong is the leader in one of those two orgs, right? Early on, I would go to, is the operations leader stronger from a go-to-market perspective or is the finance leader stronger from the go-to-market? But do you think it can drive odd outcomes or info can take longer to surface if it's within sales? Oh, 100%. No, I think it, it almost, this is incredibly stressful, right? Like hitting, you know, hitting the numbers, hitting the metrics, right? right. Um, is incredibly stressful. And it's, and it's very easy to be like, this was a hard week. I'm going to ask you for a report that in a weird way makes things look a lot better than they yeah. are. That's what I'm going to send to Guy Poe or Peter McKay to tell you that everything's all right. That is a short-term win. You might have a, a better Friday night because of that, but you're going to have a way worse time. You're kicking the can down the road. You're kicking the can down the road and you're doing yourself a disservice. You got it. You got to focus on what's not working. You can't focus. And, and if it is working, you'll get more credit for it because then it's not my guy telling me it's working. It's that's like, true. That, that, I, I'm glad you brought that up because then it's an independent source of truth saying you're doing well. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm at my last two organizations, I was the one who advocated bring someone in right now. I think sales ops or maybe generally rev ops, it, it should be brought in extremely early. Um, one of the biggest pitfalls I see in early stage companies, I've talked about this before, is everyone brings their own data to the meeting. Yeah. And then you spend 45 minutes of the hour of the meeting arguing about whose spreadsheet is right. Yeah, their own what. corroborating data yeah, that form fits their argument. dashboard that the pro VP of product in there says, you know, oh, Ethan, you're not <laughs> calling me these leads. I'm like, how long did you spend on this dashboard? <laughs> it's not even right, right? Shout out to Anair Mazur. Um, <laughs> But my point is the minute you hire an operations professional, it's like, hey, guys and guys, let me take care of the data. You will know it's accurate. You will know it's clean. And then you can come to the meeting and have the hour long meeting about strategy. Right. So I advocated for bringing them in in my last two orgs. But then I was explicit, like I am not managing that person. Yeah. You do not want me doing that. Shout out Ryan Walsh. Total, <laughs> total stud. Horse, beast, absolute <laughs> operations, animal. He he managed to wrangle the the HubSpot CRM for multiple years. Better better him than me. Yeah, that that was a mistake, but that was not his fault. That was mine. What about what about sales enablement? When should you bring that in? I think I I think around like forty fifty reps is right around the time you want to do that. I think up until then, it's good that you and marketing are still running that and, and using like your product resources. Because I think it's a forcing function for you to still be the best because you're probably still being hands-on with all the people you're bringing in and hiring and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's what I've seen. I, I'm not I'm not like super passionate about that. If you have a great leader that you've worked with before and they're available and you could bring them in at 20, I'm sure that's fine. Or you want to wait till 100. But um, I, I think, you know, right around that second year is when you want to start doing that. And then... The other side of hiring would be firing. So 
Uh, what's your philosophy on pips? Do they work? Should you just cut ties when you know it's not working? How do you think about pips? I like to have development plans and pips. And a development plan comes before a pip, and it's and it's really where you genuinely want someone to turn around. I want everyone to turn around. I shouldn't say that. Like I, this is hard. And, and are you I saying keep... a pip is like a the kiss of death? Um, I think I think a pip to me, unless unless you want to combine the both, what I've generally seen is a pip is is a HR method to exit someone from a business. Gotcha. But, I don't think that that's right if it's not pre- preceded by a genuine opportunity to turn things around and get there via sales development plan. I also think the culture you need to have in your sales leadership team is one of which you are always looking to uplevel people and so that people who are struggling are getting a lot of time and attention because no one wants to do poorly. And I and I I hire people, I make that assumption. I don't make a lot of assumptions, but I intentionally assume if you are here you want to do well it stinks not doing well and so if you're not doing well you should be very happy that you've got a manager who wants to spend a lot of time with you some people could call that micromanaging on the other side of the coin i call it elastic leadership which is if you're doing well all you're going to hear from me is like what do you need from me what obstacles do you need me to fix etc etc the minute you're not doing well you're going to see a lot more of me because not doing well stinks right Um, and then I think, look, over time you figure out, okay, was it a big hole that we fixed and someone's right? Or was someone, was this just not someone's the right fit for someone? And they're one day closer to finding the the right thing for them. Yeah. And at the end of the quarter, I'm guessing, or even the end of the month, you probably stack, right? Who's achieving the most versus not, right? I look at that. I try to, I, I, I probably lean a little bit more. Fair is not the right word. I'm struggling for this. Like, um, I I really try to understand why someone fi- finished where they are. Beyond just the numbers you're saying, like well, it could well, be. No, it's still all about the numbers, but like a thing that frustrates me and a lot of sales leaders or finance leaders or ops leaders would probably disagree. It's like, oh, Jim did 900K in bookings and Kate only did 500K in bookings. Kate got zero inbound leads. Jim got 700K of his 900K from inbound leads. I have a really hard time. I say good job to Jim. Like that's yeah. great. What you said, I have a really hard time putting Kate on a pit for that because she actually did 500K worth of outbound bookings. Jim only did 200. She was hustling. Yeah. It's and, and, and okay. Like, you know, maybe, maybe that should be an outbound territory and we should have adjusted goals between the two. But assuming you're on the same plan and they were supposed to both get some portion of inbound leads, I have a really hard time overreacting on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm probably on the on the steeper end of that. I If I'm going to make the decision to get rid of someone, I want to really make sure that I feel like it's the right decision. So I don't just stop at bookings. Like, I think that's just unfair, I guess. Yeah. And then um, the other thing I would say is where I am faster to terminate is anything around culture anything around ethics, anything around just not, the, you know, doing things, not rowing the boat the way we row the boat. What's an, what's an ethics example, like putting the wrong thing in Salesforce, or can you give me like a tactical thing you've seen? Yeah, or, or you know, you 
a story about why this is your deal. And then you uncover that that's not exactly what happened or um, an accusation about something that turns out to be just totally fabricated, um, fighting with teammates, disrespecting technical resources at the company, yelling at people, like just stuff where you're just like, hey, man, you know, everyone has a bad day, myself included. I can get a little hot under the collar. Um, so I'm not saying if someone just has a bad moment, but if there starts to be like a consistent pattern of that and it's affecting other people on the team's morale and it's just clearly like not right, I, I do not tolerate that even if someone's hitting their numbers. Um, that We got to have both sides of the coin. No assholes policy. Yeah, you just you just got to be a good person. Like I, yeah. I just can't I can't deal with that. We're not here for that. So I'm gonna move into what we call our long ass lightning round. <laughs> All right. So if people think that leaders at tech companies are you know perfect to a certain extent, what's an example of something you've messed up in your career on the job before? Keeping us on HubSpot CRM and a year longer than I should have at Sneak was really damaging. I think it even today we are behind from a Salesforce perspective because I waited too long. Um, so I, I own that one. It was a hard decision at the time. We were growing like crazy. I had minimal resources. Um, my marketing counterpoint, Lee Merrigan Moore, really wanted to do it. She was right. Um, Poor Lee. Yeah. 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 Shout um, out Lee. Yes. Um, next one here. What's something you'd tell yourself um, 10 years ago of knowing what you know today? Relax. Take it easy. I was way too intense. I'm, I'm, I'm intense now. I was nuts. I was crazy. You don't like, sit I, during I, work either. You just pace around I don't sit, I with don't pace, the gong I, drumstick in your hand. That is, that is, that is true. Uh, the gong drumstick is you right still here. have it. <laughs> $25 million in deals in this thing, CJ. Okay? <laughs> no, but I used to be, hey, we're just going to outwork everyone every single day. And we're going to get into the office at 7. And we're going to leave at 7 p.m. And we're going to goal people monthly. And I'm going to just tear people to shreds and forecast every single time. And, and, and it built a lot of people's careers. I've, I have a lot of people in my, in my network who are now dipped in bronze for that. Yeah. But we would have done better at, my, at a previous organization had I taken a longer term view of that. And, you know, I think that's just a cliche. You think class. you burned anybody out doing it? Yo, I turn people into old men and then, you know, and, and I got better at it by my end there, but like, you know, whatever gains you got from that added time, it, it just comes out the other end, you know? And, and some of it, look, it was some of it. I don't regret. Like, again, the model we were running, it was an entry level model, but I would tell myself to relax, take it easy. Cool. Roll the theme music producer, Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep yo stack sponsored by Tropic the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. What's your current uh, tech stack look like? What, what tools are you using to help you day-to-day in your job? Yeah, Salesforce, SalesLoft, Gong, uh, Zoom Info. Other than Salesforce, what's the one tool you couldn't live without? I mean, LinkedIn is still just so ridiculously good. Yeah. Not? I, I just, the thing that blows me away about LinkedIn is they somehow created this like market, this town square 
where it was like, hey, everyone's going to come into this town square and use it for different things and everyone's going to be okay with that. So it's like, hey, CISO, you get to build your brand here, but in, in, in return from that, you're going to get harassed by a bunch of salespeople, but you can't get upset by that. Pretty wild, actually, when you put it that way. <laughs> and recruiters, like, you're going to be able to go after and poach people and, and do all this stuff, but like companies can't get mad at that because they're doing it yeah, too. Right? I find yeah, we're going to take your employees, but you're also going to use it to market the employees. Yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating to me. I think it's just a genius platform. I, I could not live without LinkedIn. Um, what about you? Day to day, I look at metrics and Sigma all day. So we have it hooked up to Salesforce. Um, basically every other tool, we hooked it up to QuickBooks recently and yeah. the charts that it creates are pretty dynamic and you can play with the data and it's our one source of truth. So I, I have a, a, a Google really Chrome great. tab with about 50 Sigma reports and you can actually export it as, to be dorky into PNGs to put into your PowerPoint. So you have a nice image and don't have to build it. There you go. <laughs> what's, uh, what's the craziest thing you've ever had a salesperson try to expense? <laughs> I worked with a guy, uh, this was as a coworker who expensed $26,000 in suits, 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 like in clothing and restaurants at like literally $26,000. Like the company was kind of dysfunctional and never checked and they would just like auto approve it. And then like one day they like checked and they were like, like, what have you done? Like, yeah, <laughs> that, that was, that was, and we were all sitting around like, dude, this guy's going to get caught. This is bonkers. Like. Uh, and then, of course, he did. Get was caught. he wearing the suits to work? Yeah, it was. Yeah, we were like an EMC reseller, so like, yeah, he was wearing nice suits that he wasn't paying for. Dry clean. He was like doing his dry cleaning. He was like literally using it like a credit card. It was insane. My goodness. For a funny story, uh, someone who worked for me, we were uh, my 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 previous company was in Estonia at the time, and it's and it was in January, and it's only four hours of light. So I will say, I understand why he did this. It's very hard to wake up, right? And he was really worried about missing these. He, I, I would bring one sales leader with me every time. So he had a bunch of big meetings and he was really worried about missing them and all this kind of stuff. So we get back and, and the COO calls me into his office and he's like, why is person X, why does he have seven bath fees? Like he's getting like that. We were at a nice hotel and, and he was like paying for them to like come in and set up like the lavender bath. You know, like if you were there with your wife, you could like pay for this nice thing to have get, get set up. And then it turned out it was because that he was using the guy as a human wake up call. <laughs> so he would schedule it every morning at 6 a.m. And the guy would come up like, Miss, you know, Mr. Sir. You know, you know, a bubble bath. And he'd be like, I don't need the bath. Thank you so much. So I had the two talking to, but I actually thought that was kind of ingenious. And I, I, yeah, the guy, I got to give the guy credit. He really wanted to wake up. But the COO was like, rip shit. Like, what is this guy? Like, what? This is just waste. You know what I mean? Like, how could you do this? It was pretty funny. So those are my <laughs> two craziest, I'd say. Oh, man. Any Anything we, we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? I would just say, you know, for finance people out there, and this is something you always did a really good job of, and I think you've obviously learned it from Ken McCaskill, our, our CFO, and be involved in go-to-market, be involved in sales, like be part of the team. Again, that doesn't mean set up the checks and balances, like having operations outside of sales so you don't feel like you're getting biased, 
But, you know, a saying I've, I've always loved is like accidents happen at intersections, right? And a lot of the stuff we just talked about, planning, models, all this kind of stuff, it's so much easier to get that stuff wrong if you're a finance leader that really doesn't understand what's going on on, on the go-to-market side. Um, and I think it actually allows you to drive and hold sales more accountable when you do because you don't get told stories, right? Yeah. Um, so I would just say jump in the water's warm, right? Like I and, and I think if you're hiring, you tell me the right type of sales leaders, they actually welcome that. Because um, for me, it's like, if I'm gonna have a bad quarter or something's gonna happen, I want you to know exactly why. Because usually it was outside of my control or it wasn't my fault, of course, you know? And it helps me to have people understand what's going on, right? Gotta get out into the business and be a part of it. You can't just be an observer. 100%. That would be my, my, my biggest one. It's fun. I think, I think it is salespeople. I think it also, you underestimate how intimidated a lot of salespeople are about like business. You know what I mean? And getting exposure to finance people and CFOs who can like kind of teach them about that or like, Hey, this is how fundraising works. or this is why, you know, we need to raise the goals for metric like that, that, stays with them for future opportunities and gives them opportunities. So doing that, I think salespeople actually are generally very appreciative of that um, from my experience. That's great advice. Cool. E, this has been a blast. It's always fun to catch yeah. up with you, man. Great catching up, CJ. Awesome. Thanks. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.